Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. There's rebellion in the wind. It will be crushed. Everything I've said is true. It's real. Dinosaur bosses? I'll like to put those here to test our faith. A damn lie. I, I saw him on my own eye. Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did an illusions, man. None of it is true. I know it's insane. This is mass madness, you maniac. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. Um... So, first of all, thank you for checking this episode out, everybody. Appreciate you being here. And uh, I apologize for my horrible voice. I'm definitely getting sick. It's odd, too. I quit nicotine for the first time since I was 18. So, I read about it. You can get, like, the flu, basically, from quitting. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, that's what it feels like. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. So, we're going to push through it. I'm not going to talk as much as Dwayne anyway, because he's going to be bringing the heat here. Um, But Dwayne Hayes, welcome back to the Deep Share podcast. Bulletproof Publishers represent. Thank you for being here, man. How's it going? Awesome. Couldn't be happier. Uh, Done a lot of work here. We probably should have done this about two months ago, really, but we I just found so much work. Uh, so much other information that was relevant and pertinent to everything that's going on today that I had to just keep following that down the hole. And so the result was a 10 part series and, and you've been gracious enough with your time. I know you're a busy guy. And so you've given us here a platform to release all of this information, all of this work that I've done over the last, I don't know, six months even, but going back into the summer, I started to do this preparing for this show Mm. yeah when we first started talking about it yeah at the at the end of the summer yeah my my take on it was it was going to be like uh it was going to be our third episode together you know we're like okay let's do the rise of the expert let's cover that whole angle and we were going to do it like in one episode at first and then you were like this is going to probably have to be a multi-parter and then you know as time progressed we would keep talking and it would suddenly be like this is gaining momentum this is turning into Mm -hmm. a massive avalanche of of data and um yeah I, i i love I love what you've done with it and it's going to be um, a killer presentation for sure. And um, I I wrote it actually all in one article. I just kept writing it in, in one Mm -hmm. and then broke it up into, you know, manageable pieces. And so it turned into, you know, 10 parts wrote half a book almost maybe in, (laughs) in five or six months. But this, this, this information man is super relevant to today. It, holds within it all of the answers to the questions that everybody has and uh, i couldn't think of a more appropriate show to to start this on than one called the deep share so i appreciate it with with uh, all your help and everything andy likewise brother likewise um so i guess without further ado let's um let's get into the heart of it we're talking about 
this whole concept of the expert that of course over the past few years has definitely gained quite a bit of turmoil that it may not have had before but it should have and uh now our eyes are being slowly pried open to basically the roots of our social contract and how we like the picture of the american dream quote unquote that has now basically fully presented itself and where that comes from and what the real underbelly of it is and it's it's pretty dark (laughs) well it's pretty deep i would say that uh i i find it it is dark but it really is in its in its form you know it's enlightening because it really shows us how they designed all this and 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 the thoughts that went behind our daily lives and and it is that i just stumbled across this being you know the origins of our social contract is probably the best most concise way that i could I could say it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that was about 10 days ago that I realized that what we were looking into was just that our social contract, the creation of our modern day social contract that, that, you know, and really what that is, is the matrix because when Morpheus talks about it, you know, we can feel it when we pay our taxes and all of these other different ways that we can feel the matrix, but we can't quite see it. Well, these are all the things that this, this guy, Louis Brandeis Supreme court justice, uh really brought into effect through being first an attorney in the early years of the 1900s and then in the second decade of the 1900s becomes you know Woodrow Wilson's most trusted personal advisor uh he's elected supreme court justice in 1913 and he becomes the head of essentially world zionism in 1914 uh so and he's designing you know, domestic and foreign American policy all at the same time, including the creation of Israel, uh, just in through this research, we've also uncovered just how deeply involved he is in in the creation of Israel, working uh, side by side in tandem, in concert with the House of Rothschild. And so that'll be episode three or four somewhere. I think that's a two parter just because that itself is is pretty deep. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Louis Brandeis is the guy he's going to be the um, point of interest here for the next 10 episodes. And so, so he's the, basically the, the origin point of what we would call this whole expertise uh, styled form of education and presentation in society, at least in the West here that we have today. Yep. And he, he's, you know, he's roommates essentially at the House of Truth with Walter Lippmann. And you and I have gone through the House of Truth on previous episodes. And Walter Lippmann is mm. considered the, the father of modern journalism. And so he's associated. He's a Fabian Society member, but he's uh, best friends with Graham Wallace, who's a Fabian founder. And Graham Wallace writes the book, uh, The Great Society. And so Walter Lippmann helps promote and popularize that term. Um Lippmann uses the good society in his book, but he routinely throughout his career was talking about the great society, a scientifically managed or governed uh, society. And so what we see is that Walter Lippmann is, is setting this all up through uh, creating modern journalism and what is modern journalism really, but you know, 
the scientific the opinion of the scientific expert these days almost nearly every headline says experts say or some mm -hmm. form of appeal to authority that is similar mm -hmm. so brandeis working with lipman and several other members at this house of truth brandeis is, is the eldest i believe oliver wendell holmes is probably older but brandeis is the one that really enacts this administrative state the um intelligence bureaus that walter Lippmann talks about in a in public opinion that he feels mm -hmm. is going to be the only form of government that's really going to work is where they create this giant administrative state and within each one there's an expert that takes care of every aspect of american life so when you look at the creation of the administrative state, that starts with the Federal Reserve and, and the F Federal Trade Commission, the FTC and the Fed. Those are both um, considered today um, designs, concepts derived straight from Brandeis's mind. And so mm -hmm. at, at any point here you, you wish, I can share the screen and we can start going into some detail because I'd like to actually start with his youth and just sort of create a background as to the environment that he grew up in, okay? Absolutely, yeah. Right. Um, I think you should be able to share the screen. Um, I haven't used uh, Zoom in a while. <laughs> yeah, there we go, yeah. Now, is that my sound stuff? <laughs> yeah, that's your sound stuff. <laughs> Let me see. I'm used to the other one now. Excellent uh, logo, by the way. I had to snag that and use it for our for our show. Yeah, are you seeing that logo? now? The was... American flag with Brandeis in the front. Absolutely, the oh, new freedom, the new competition. Right. I love that, man. Just like because right. we've we've gone over the word new multiple yeah. times, and I quote you and your and well, essentially Lippman as well, uh, yeah. many many times online, just to point yeah. out how many of the, this word new was so manufactured and pushed mm -hmm. into our like our modern thinking. Yeah. And that's really language of the progressives. Yeah. And that is the new world order. These guys I have said for a long time, put new in new world order because of the books that were written all in 1913 and, and everybody go back to bulletproofpub.com and check out some of the articles there. And we go into that. And uh, the previous episodes that I've appeared here on the deep share, we, we have discussions just like this on, on the house of truth. Everything really starts there. So mm. it's important to know who's coming and going from the House of Truth, this political salon in Northwest uh, Washington. So I invite everybody to go and, and look into the article on bulletproofpub.com called The Devil's Agent, The House of Truth. There's two and just, there, but I'd rather you read The Devil's Agent. It's more complete and it looks nicer. Beautiful. Yeah, there's many, many articles on there. And you guys are really building a comprehensive timeline and the details are just filling in more and more as the articles yeah. keep coming. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to document as we are uh, researching. And so that's what this is. It's a great opportunity for us to release our latest information. And so on this picture, I just wanted to include all of the, the catch terms that we're going to get used to and, and understand here over the next 10 weeks. Uh, these all have to do with, Louis Brandeis and the ways that, in which he infiltrated all aspects of our lives. Taylorism, jurisprudence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's all towards an industrial democracy. 
So Lippmann and Graham Wallace talk about a great society being a scientifically governed one. And, and Brandeis says the same thing. He just calls it industrial democracy. And, and actually Graham Wallace or um, Sidney Webb, Sidney and Beatrice Webb write a book called Industrial Democracy in 1902. And it, this all sort of spills out of that as mm -hmm. we see. So Louis Brandeis, there he is as a young kid. He was born in 1856 in Louisville to Adolf and Frederica. So Adolf Brandeis and Frederica Dembitz. Those are two key family names. The Brandeis family originated from a small city on the river near Prague, Czech Republic, called Brandeis on the Elbe. So this establishes that they're coming from somewhere that is named after them. Mm -hmm. like, not named after their family, but their family name is pre prevalent and has been for, you know, generations prior to Louis. Mm -hmm. So he grew up one of four children and his family were uh, followers of the radical Yakov Frank or Jacob Frank. No way. So he starts. I did not Frankism. know that. Yeah. yeah. And so that's a sort of de degenerate antinomianism or a rejection of all moral and social norms. And the Brandeis family part of a long rabbinical line of social reformers. Adolf himself, a liberal revolutionary who moved his young family to the States, narrowly escaping the fallout of the 1848 Austrian Revolution. So his dad is a liberal uh, radical. Mm. Plenty of fuel for the fire. Right. And so here's something that we just, is it this one? Oh, it's I can't, the, Frank can, the Frankist connection is yes. alarming. So, yes. Yeah, so, Many people are going to be unfamiliar with Frankism. Just go in and look into it. It's uh, yeah, I've you know, spoken the, about it on my show as well many times. It's well, it's the opposite of a religion. It seems it's it's literally as Robert Sepper put it in his book, sixteen sixty six, redemption through sin, like right. seeking out the most profane and disgusting and just yeah horrible behavior yep. and beliefs to aim your way back into heaven or something. Right. It's it's deep and dark for sure. Yeah. And so in uh, 1848, Adolf was chosen as a representative by the oldest members of the Brandeis, Dembitz and Whale families to travel to North America as an envoy or a scout to study American conditions and select a location. <sighs> and so that is taken from Brandeis or Freeman's life, Alpheus Thomas Mason. He is one of several official Brandeis biographers that we talk about here. Wow. So here's what's interesting that Adolf arrived in New York, traveled for a while in the East, and then went on to the agricultural Middle West, visiting farms and villages along the way. Young Brandeis's pleasure and facility in travel were greatly enhanced by the companionship of a young friend of the Wales, then on a business trip to the United States to secure information about American investments for the House of Rothschild. Perfect. Oh, so, Jesus. You know, Louis's not even born yet, and his dad yeah. is, you know, Rothschild's riding shotgun. Uh, they're going so, out there yeah, this... on horse and buggy and they've got a Rothschild agent with them and they are pioneering into new areas of America. This seems all so um, perfect, like just all put together. So, so perfectly so like Louis right? rise is, is obviously like foretold in this family. <laughs> yeah. And there's obviously a mission that goes back beyond even modern yes. day. And so Absolutely. You look at where they come from, Prague and Bohemia and that part of Prussia, right? Right. You know, a lot of American culture comes from there. 
So this all amounting to a strange chapter in the biography of an eventual member of the U.S. Supreme Court and advisor to the U.S. president. And despite many efforts to suppress his upbringing, it remains after all these years still true. And the present day narrative surrounding Brandeis remains largely apologetic, if not completely dismissive of as many obvious and concerning conflicts of both interest and character. So we're starting to see that this guy, I mean, this is the life that he's born into. Literally. And, yeah. Yeah. And so we start to see that this starts to creep out into into his public life. You start to see that it happens. I mean, he marries his second cousin. And so, you know, that is uh, a certain Frankism. degree of tabooness. I mean, yep. if I think about marrying my second cousin, that would be pretty disturbing. <laughs> so uh, Brandeis's grandfather and great-grandfather in Prague had been leaders in this Frankist cult that swept Central Europe in the late 18th century. So you can see that it's a long line. Mm. Brandeis is is uh, just the latest representative. So Jacob Frank slept with his followers and maybe even his daughter. He preached a nihilistic doctrine that saw this world as intrinsically corrupt and believed that the best way to imitate God was to cross every boundary, tra transgress every taboo, and mix the sacred with the profane, which is what Andy just said. And now, well put here. Not, okay, so we have sources. We are saying that, but you know, we're taking that from. Rabbi J. Michelson, PhD in Jewish thought, Hebrew University. So if there's anybody that could, you know, be a spokesman for all of Jewish thought, maybe it's him. He's J.D. Oh, Yale Law School. He's involved he's, in gender studies as well now, right. of course. And, oh, gender studies in religion. <laughs> yes. And it's all based out of religion. So he's got the Chicago Theological Seminary. Mm. So he knows his religion. He knows his Jewish religion. And he's he knows his history of Brandeis, certainly. Mm -hmm. but that's you know they're not talking like that on msnbc this is uh a personal document or paper that he'd written mm -hmm. and so you know these things are there and the mainstream does know of them they just aren't amplifying them for sure yeah. no and there's again we have a lack of you know, uh, interest at this depth of the stories yeah. uh, in the public eye. Nobody has yeah. time. You know, I think slowly but surely people are making more time. Let's yep. hope, you know. Yeah. And you know what, Andy, this isn't all that far underneath the surface. It's not. It's hiding mostly mm -hmm. in plain sight. Yeah. You know? And this is what all the, the, the um, distraction is all about. I really do believe that the, a lot of the gatekeeping is to keep particularly this guy, but you know, mm. in general, the progressive movement, you know, out of public purview. We never mention, we never hear any of our big wig alternative thinking uh, rebels uh, anywhere talking about the progressive movement specifically. Yeah. The Not word much. progressive has kind of been left behind um, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, bringing up arguments against it or anything. You know, it's kind of just, yeah. we talk about so, the woke movement. Right. It sounds so, so childish. At the beginning of this, I said that a lot of the answers for our questions are found in this work. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. is one of them. To understand this woke culture and, and where it came from is really established here, too, through Brandeis. Well, especially, I mean, real quick, I'll, I'll let you yep. go on right after yep. this, but just the connection to the Frankist ideal and the Sabbatian, right. or what is it, the Sabbatai Zevi idea of, yep. you know, seeking God through the profane. Um, you know, the yeah. woke society and what it's all leading to. And yeah. it makes sense that this is kind of set up in a Frankist kind of worldview. Totally, man. When you see that angle, you can start to see that that's actually what's going on in our world. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and so um, Louis Brandeis had a portrait of Frank's daughter, Eva, on his desk at the Supreme Court, an heirloom he received from his Dembitz relatives, whose ancestors <sighs> were followers of Frank. So That's Brandeis bizarre. eventually marrying Alice Goldmark, his second cousin and daughter of prominent Austrian chemist, the discoverer of red phosphorus, Joseph Goldmark. Now, Joseph Goldmark, we did talk a little bit about that through um, Messenger, that he's the father of seven daughters. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but they are very active, especially three of them in the progressive movement and, and women's suffrage. And, you know, uh, as we will see through this series, they become very important to Brandeis, the Goldmark, uh, both his wife, and, uh, but his also his um sister-in-law i guess we would call her but they're both really his second cousins mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so despite his family not being able to afford it young lewis somehow enters harvard law now uh, he's his family is well off obviously if rothschilds are riding shotgun in your in your pioneering days out into the west you know as a manifest destiny type of mm -hmm. idea You're, there's money coming from somewhere and so this kind of explains a little bit of how he even gets into harvard and at such a young age he's walking the hallowed halls of the ivy league just shy of his 19th birthday graduating in 1877 class valedictorian kuma laude phi beta kappa society at the age of 20 they had to change some sort of internal harvard rule to allow him to grad graduate at 20 so he is a smart guy Mm -hmm. and you know he was trained he went back to germany to train when he was a child went to um for two years of you know specialized study as you know a lot of these characters do but it's usually post-grad that they go uh, louis went when he was you know not even it was before his harvard days that he went and learned all of this and so you see that he's an uh, sort of an omniscient character and a sage advisor to all and so, you know, he's studied, he's, he's very learned, very intelligent. <clears throat> he's no dummy. Right. And so here's a picture of him at Harvard, a class of 1877 right there in the circle. Mm -hmm. And he is known throughout his entire class as the smartest guy there. There's stories about, you know, guys losing their books and, and walking around through classes, looking for their books and their friends telling them to go ask Brandeis he'll probably know where their lost book is so he's he's a legend already before interesting he leaves there and it's really a lifelong uh career that he spends there even though he's a supreme court justice and he does all of these other things he's really his ties to Harvard never break he's very close there he's constantly lecturing at at Harvard and and doing all kinds of extracurricular activities there mm -hmm. you know himself and through his lieutenants, Frankfurter and Julian Mack, and these guys that we're going to meet through this series. So here's what um, somebody said about Brandeis. I've got the sources at the bottom here. Okay. Okay. We've got about, I'd say, close to 30 just on this story. That's because excellent. We've got 18 in the list here, but then there's some that we just offer throughout the body of the work. And mm -hmm. so this quote I'm about to read is from the Brandeis Confirmation a Century Later, Oxford University, Paul Finkelman and Lance J. Sussman. And they talk about how Brandeis was a forerunner of other social activist lawyers who were later appointed to the court, such as Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm. Now, those are big names on the left, right? Oh, yeah. 
like pious so, names. Yep. <laughs> and so Brandeis is really the forerunner. He's the pioneer of of creating a social activist Supreme Court justices. And this this is why I start with this story. Because on, just on a very basic level, we see a conflict of interest. You know, we don't have to start imagining anything. You know, uh, the fact that he's a social activist and a Supreme Court justice are two conflicting ideas. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe not so uh, obvious today, but super obvious then. And these are no. The, and I think a lot. Th there's a number of. Though there's a lot of young people out there that could listen to this and be like, I don't understand why that's a problem. You know, like, shouldn't we have some sort of conscious guy in office that's not going to just be some cog in a machine? Maybe if the machine's already corrupt, but it's never for our benefit when there's any sort of social justice being uh, enacted at yeah. this kind of uh, scale or this level. Yeah, they are just using social justice, social sciences to manipulate and steer society. That's really absolutely what sociology and, and the social sciences were created for. All of this comes from Prussia, as we will show. Hell yeah. So today in American academia, it seems strange that Brandeis' reputation still stands strong some 80 years after his passing in 1941. It's almost as if people have been deliberately kept from looking deeper into the man Brandeis remains a respected and revered beacon of modern social justice movements, and Brandeis University stands today as an institution to Brandeis's radical progressive ideals. We see that they were the first private university to shut down any pro-Palestinian uh, protests on university campuses in America. So you still wow. you see that you know they are still wielding power here. And suppressive power, not allowing people to speak, especially those that are um, being oppressed. So that story um, that we are being told from the mainstream media over in the Middle East is about as backwards as, you know, reality is. Mm. You know, they've really fed us a pseudo environment. This is what Walter Lippmann talked about, was creating a pseudo environment. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Pseudo environment and the effective environment are, uh, don't match at all. I would say that Israel's been the aggressor there since November 1917 and the publication of the Balfour Declaration. I mean, it's pretty obvious. And and when we get into this, you will see that it's it's even worse than what we thought. Yeah, because it's not just the Balfour. I mean, people a lot of time like plant their flag solely on the Balfour Declaration. But I mean, that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg when it comes down to it. And we won't get into it in this series particularly, but but uh, for the audience, the chats that you, me, and Andy have behind the scenes, text and my ranting audio <laughs> clips that I yep. send you guys, like this doesn't just go back to you know the late 1800s. This is a plot that has many moving parts and many different chapters to it. Mm -hmm. And Dwayne and his work has uncovered such a vast amount of it that's so relevant to the world we see now. While I'm a lot of times busy trying to fill in the back parts of it. Yeah. You know, you're filling in all this relevant information for the past century and a half. And it's like, it's just unreal to see how and where and why these different periods of history are starting to line up. Mm -hmm. And the deception is kind of starting to take shape finally. Uh, and again, chapters and chapters of a deception that has changed shape over time as well over centuries but yeah just yeah. wanted to throw that in there 
Yeah, and they are all related. And and so that is what we are doing. That is the ultimate mission is to, to connect, you know, old ancient times with what is happening here in modernity because we mm. are seeing extensions all the way back into ancient times and this sort of pursuit of certainty, pursuit of scientific control of society, this pursuit of world dominance is something that's been going on since the beginning of time. And so we're just experiencing the most modern, technologically advanced um, version of it. Yeah, man. It's like the reboot or, <laughs> or yeah, just like the newer yeah. sequels to a old movie yeah. series, you know, and it's, it's coming undone. Well, they say that history rhymes and, and I, and it's totally obvious that it does history repeats. And that is how we learn how to not repeat history is by learning what happened. Absolutely. And so that, that this is why this work, in my opinion, is just so critical is to understand our history, to see how they deceived and tricked us. And so that we uh, go forward, not being tricked again. And it's, you know, it's just the same as learning logical fallacy. Once you learn logical fallacy and how it's wielded against us, you can't unlearn those things and you just become more powerful absolutely uh, less manipulatable you know and that's all better for your own individuality and your own your own spirit so and that's the goal um when a critical analysis of brandeis is honestly undertaken this humanitarian man of the people persona quickly becomes a contrived and disingenuous cover story for a man with many faces who is only now being burdened with the appropriate historical weight earned from such a prolonged and prolific career of anti-constitutional and anti-American radical social reform. So we we do feel that at Bulletproof, we're kind of opening some doors that have never been opened before, and we're not sure what's, what's going to happen, but we are de dedicated to telling the truth. And Hell so yeah. in respect to both the Brandeis family and you, the reader, we at BulletproofPub.com recognize the large responsibility that comes with exposing past lies agreed upon and have painstakingly searched out and procured a collection of the most legitimate and trusted source material, extracting primary and secondary artifacts from the personal writings of Brandeis, his family, his close friends, and his many, many business associates. We've borrowed vigorously from the archives of several prestigious universities, including Brandeis's very own, compiling dozens of doctoral dissertations from recognized and award-winning authors who were given unfettered access to the Brandeis personal papers. And as a result, we have compiled and cataloged a near library of related material in an effort to gain greater context of both the man and the times in which he lived. So we're trying to be responsible. We're trying to go through this in a, in a deductive, logical, reasonable way, because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, making our society a better place is serious to me and, and defeating you know, energies that are trying to suppress all of humanity is important to me. And so how important it is shows in, in just how far we're willing to go. And so. Um, yeah, absolutely. Your thorough work is definitely proof, you know, well, there's of two your things, sincerity. There's two things that, that are important, right? When we talk about journalism and that is, is it true? And is it in the, in the public interest? And I would say yes to mm -hmm. both of those emphatically. So here we get into his relationship with Woodrow Wilson and, and why he's called the architect of the new freedom. So the new freedom is really Wilson's presidential uh, platform. And mm. this is where 
a large government uh, run by a scientific expert really gets established. And this is really like the girders and the underpinnings of the New World Order. Uh, Louis Brandeis laying the groundwork here for more to come. And you can see that they started here with Wilson, with domestic policy, with the creation of the administrative state, because they needed to first establish the this this concept of expert, but they needed to have it in, you know, as institutions. They, right. they needed to institutionalize it. So with, you know, to do that, you need brick and mortar. You have to have actual established buildings to work out of. So you can see that this is where, you know, the Federal Reserve is created in, in 1913. And you need a foundation. You need this monster to have a background. Otherwise, it won't be taken seriously. Yeah. And so at the end of August, Wilson sought one contributor in particular, but not for his money. Wilson needed somebody to sharpen his message. He wanted to discuss the issue with the most incisive mind on the subject. Fortunately, that man had already expressed an interest in his campaign. Though when he shuttled from Boston to New York by night boat, August 27th, Louis Brandeis could not have known that he, as much as anybody, could shape the future of Woodrow Wilson's campaign and career. So they meet August 27th. This is less than two weeks after um, Brandeis meets Jacob de Haas, and de Haas allegedly inspires Brandeis into the Zionist movement. So he meets de Haas for the first time and Woodrow Wilson for the first time within two weeks uh, in the three months leading up to Wilson's election as president. Wow. So Louis, he, and so what they're talking about here is uh, how they were going to control the trusts and monopoly. Cause this is really what's going on back in that day, right? Is, is uh, you know, standard oil is being broken up and they're having these trust busting, um, commissions and committees and investigations in and, and Brandeis is actually leading a lot of these and you know Brandeis is Phi Beta Kappa and so are a lot of the people that oppose him so we're I think what we're seeing is uh you know a controlled opposition there they control oh, okay. both you know counsel for the government and and the opposition to it okay because that makes sense know, Taft Taft is William Howard Taft is Phi Beta Kappa Skull and Bones, and he's leading the eight judge um, bar association that that opposes Brandeis's election or a confirmation to the Supreme Court. So hmm. I think it's all just sort of a fabricated um, complaint against Brandeis. I think that they all wanted him in there. And, and so we see that he gets in there regardless of all of the blowback, because mm -hmm. really the fight takes you know, from nomination to confirmation, uh, five months or something. And I think we get into that here. That is interesting that, you know, Phi Beta Kappa wasn't standing kind of uh, unitarily on one of their members like that, you know, or mm -hmm. I guess it, it could be simple power struggle, but yeah, it could be controlled opposition as well. Kind of. Yeah. I don't know. That is interesting well, I, though. I would say this about that is that mm. all of their perspective on government is that it's too bureaucratic to get anything done. Mm -hmm. And and they're more loyal to their private fraternal university connections than they are to their business ones. Right, absolutely. And, and so they pledge allegiance in college to each other. Phi Beta Kappa is, is the oldest fraternal society, secret society in America. 
And mm -hmm. I think, and this is where I get into speculation. I believe that, you know, this uh, Phi Beta Kappa and Skull and Bones here in the West is connected directly back to, you know, Bavarian or uh, the Skull and Bones in Germany. Yeah. Because would, that's really where everything else is coming from. So it would only mm -hmm. make sense that that is who's driving that. And so what we are getting at here too, is that it's not, we're trying to drive through Brandeis here. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we're going to identify him as a person of interest, but I want to know who's steering the Brandeises and, and who's steering this move to the West and, 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 you know, what's driving this creation of such a, you know, influential person. Right. So, <sighs> Uh, Brandeis was thought of by Wilson as his obvious pick for attorney general or secretary of commerce before he was elected Supreme Court justice. Brandeis telling Rabbi Stephen Weiss he needed Brandeis everywhere. So this is the influence that Brandeis has on Wilson. Jesus. Brandeis wow. is today touted as the very architect of the new freedom. Wilson's 1912 progressive platform. We argue when Brandeis traveled to meet the president, he had already formulated his progressive plan and knew exactly what he was doing. From that initial introductory meeting at Seagirt, Wilson leaned heavily on the expertise of Brandeis, whose opinions on economic questions he respected above all others. Wow. Those are in quote marks. So wow. because Brandeis understood the problem thoroughly, this trust issue, the, the monopolies, because he was ready with a definite plan for the bridling of monopoly, he became the chief architect of the new freedom. So we're just now substantiating all of his biographers are saying that he is the architect of the new freedom. They're saying this all in the exact same terminology too. Do you so think this is, is all, you know, as you said a little earlier, this isn't that deep in, mm -hmm. you know, you can find this obviously. And it's like, do you think they were just, they're just relying so heavily on the brainwashing that people will find all this and still just look yep. at all of them as heroes of social justice. Yes, obviously, yeah. obviously, yeah. because like, it doesn't look like evidence. It looks like praise <laughs> Yeah. or yeah. Or, or well, just at least like, you know, you know what I mean though? Like it, it, with a brainwashed mind, almost nothing that we're alluding to here. It's like, well, yeah, they were putting together this, new amazing science-led society so yeah. it's so unfortunate that like to people like us this is gonna you know sp you know set a, a light off in the brain but mm -hmm. hopefully this uh the fact that this is all so such detailed and, and like forensic evidence at this point yeah hopefully it'll cross the barriers you know yep and i would say that you know in the walter Lippmann uh conference that they had in 2022 it was really um a call to arms mm -hmm. you know, the columbia school of journalism and they they're the ones that consider Lippmann the father of modern journalism and they're the ones advocating for a government uh and a society run by scientific expert and right. some of these guys uh talk about how the expert is actually being attacked from both sides and they name um the jesuit uh leader of covid messaging what was his name fauci fauci yes and they name yeah they name him as really a lightning rod for for both the right and the left interesting which was kind of an eye opener so they're this is why they're having this this meeting is cuz they're wondering about the health and, and the 
you know, the prospects of longevity for the idea of the expert here in the West. Right, right. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So this, the centerpieces of this new freedom were the creation of the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Reserve Board. The Fed, a centralized banking scheme independent of the government based on lending money at interest that has led to a collective debt so large and crippling as to render an entire nation paralyzed by a forever growing debt clock. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission, a regulatory institution that has since its benevolent inception expanded into a vast network of surveillance and monitoring well beyond its originally publicly stated intentions. So we're seeing Brandeis Institute usury, um, speculation, and uh, surveillance. Yeah. And so as we get into this, you're going to see that the thoughts of surveillance and the thoughts of all of these things go way back and they are deep into philosophy and different uh, philosophical thinkers throughout history. And so we're going to introduce people to, to Bentham and Comte's positivism. And so they yes. establish all of this. And you talk about how they keep people away from this. This is how, because mm. it's all a psychological operation. It's, yeah. it's all a way to keep us psychologically um, away from the things that they don't want us to see like this and mm -hmm. so that's what how they're using television and so they look at this another thing that i pulled out of this walter Lippmann conference was that they look at uh today as um attracting our attention spans as the new oil hmm. right uh that's amazing just, yeah just like information was the new oil like six seven years ago now our attention is and so as long as they have your attention, we lose. And that's a very basic way to look at it. As long as you're staring at the TV, man, we lose. Right. Because we're we're addicted to the pseudo environment and we're looking at things that aren't real. Yeah, just distractions constantly. And that is a direct development. This is like the, the uh, furthest extent of the imagination of men like Walter Lippmann and, and Sidney Webb, this world that we live in today just where we're you know for them it would have been a dream to have this um technical device that we all have in our pocket yeah oh it yeah controls us even in our in our um even in our most bored moments you know what do we turn to but this phone and what is it but it just is uh reaffirmations of pseudo environment yeah, like Marshall McLuhan back in the right. 50s talking about how mankind was like the sex organs of the machine world, the future machine world. And it's like at the time when I read that quote a long time ago, it was like, I think it was like Terrence McKenna saying that quote. Um, you know, you, you take it one way, but now looking back, I wonder how you know, possibly connected that guy was to certain individuals and institutions and kind of pushing that idea into the public sphere. Like this is happening, you know, we are, will be secondary or you yeah, will be it's secondary. Really, it's really legitimizing media when he says the media is the message. 
Right. Absolutely. And you know, another thing about the scientific, uh, like ruled by a council of experts, um, again, that's not like we're talking about being played by both sides here. Like, you know, the typical counterculture, more right leaning, a little center, Joe Rogan people, all of them, including him, uh, constantly talk about being ruled by a group of like philosophical experts how that would be a much better way of doing things and you know he's so connected to jordan peterson and all these characters who want to take out the wef and rise up with a better way and it's like this seems like we're walking right into it right and so then that is controlled opposition because what, Bingo. Is, what is that but the political philosopher that they're talking about and yep. so that is now george santiana harvard uh professor that taught walter Lippmann. Mm-hmm. okay and so their dream what i see because Lippmann was was training under william james the father of or the creator of pragmatism and george santiana you know the guy that wanted a political philosopher mm-hmm. and so what comes out of there but walter Lippmann, really a political philosopher so these are influencers of society and i would say jordan peterson is is one great example of these people today yep absolutely because he's got intellectual high ground nearly on everybody even if he's wrong he sounds right oh it's disgusting too yeah, it is. He's obnoxious, but yeah, he is. He's like a wordsmith in yeah. a way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I credit him with a lot of what I've done. Like I took his, uh, his writing program mm-hmm. and he really inspired me to get off my ass and do something. But ever since he went away for a while and he was sick, I swear to God, he had a lobotomy or something and he's come back totally dark, totally different. He's, he's affiliated now with, uh, Shapiro and the daily wire or whatever. Yeah. And, everything everything coming out of jordan peterson is dark yeah absolutely depressing and scary and apocalyptic i would take everything about jordan peterson up until about covid and then after that throw it all away Mm -hmm. as far as i can see yeah and so uh the many committees commissions and councils created by brandeis during the wilson's wilson administration's first term representing the actual manifestation of Lippmann's proposed intelligence bureaus an essential part of Graham Wallace's futuristic utopian great society or Sidney Webb's scientifically governed industrial democracy. So we've talked about that. And so through the founding first of these regulatory agencies led by Brandeis, we see the very first glimpses into the administrative state. And so Lester Frank Ward is, is the guy that's credited with creating the welfare state. And we're going to get back to him in later episodes in the creation of our system of law or our philosophy of modern law because mm-hmm. he's knee deep there too so think about that lester frank ward the founder of the welfare state hmm. is very involved here so Makes i remember sense. you know grandparents talking about the welfare state and fdr being a socialist president and we see that that's exactly what's happened we're starting to really enforce all of that with uh, substantiation with provenance with receipts and and history doesn't start with fdr goes this all begins with Woodrow Wilson. And uh, as we will show nearing the end of all of this, Louis Brandeis is influencing FDR. FDR actually calls Louis Brandeis Isaiah. <laughs> wow. That's an interesting uh, yep. that's <laughs> little nickname. nickname. Yeah. That's what he calls Louis Brandeis Isaiah. Oh, wow. 
So we see here, we're just uh, substantiating again, Wilson had intended his secretary of commerce to be one of America's staunchest progressives. His advisor, Louis D. Brandeis, earliest mention of his name, however, incited considerable protest. Politicians, businessmen and attorneys denounced him as a radical, a reckless meddler. So they knew of him back in the day, obviously. Uh, he was the people's attorney, you know, the first decade of the 1900s, he really became prominent and, you know, nationally known around 1908 to 1910. And then he parlays all of this into, you know, running Wilson's administration. And so they called, they, they said that the new freedom called for a new declaration of independence to give you an idea of what they were thinking. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're actually trying to, and, and Brandeis mentions this several times, and these are the words that he uses to experiment on the U.S. Constitution. And so we are taking what we are doing essentially there is taking a a in the U.S. Constitution, you have immovable laws, you know, um, rights and freedoms, privileges that aren't supposed to be screwed with, right? Mm -hmm. Like our ability to speak our ability to think for ourselves, those things should never be, you know, considered in any other way. And they apply living law, a, a philosophy of living law to accompany this progressive, always moving society. And so they needed to imply social sciences as the feedback loop. And, and that, that's fairly, um, convoluted i suppose but if anybody understands what the feedback loop is mm. uh again go back to house of truth or the future perfect series where we talk about the creation of um surface to air missiles mm -hmm. this is really where this comes from if you think about a surf uh, missile trying to hit a target moving in the air it needs constant information feedback uh in accordance to you know its location in relation to its target and so you know, Norbert Wiener discovered that this feedback loop was the way to steer missiles and hit their target. And then they applied this to, to uh, social sciences and to society. Yeah. And so what social sciences are, is that feedback. They are constantly researching humans. They're researching society. And then the applied science is where they apply it. And so it's a we are living in a giant experiment. This is one of the, you, you talk about it being dark. I think the dark aspect of this is really coming in, coming to grips with our true reality. And that is that we have been in experiment our entire lives, you know, law, sociology is the study of society, the new school for so, so, uh, social research and, and all of these social science research institutions. That's what they are doing. And we are constantly under, investigation and so the social engineers the high level grant strategists are crunching those numbers and and reapplying them as best as they can to steer society as right. we would a ship right we go back to the definitions of government and cybernetics yeah being one and the same and you know the the new way now it's just it's it's like uh going from project mk ultra to what people would consider monarch you know taking it to an open source level where everything is manufactured consent now we sign our own experimental uh <laughs> permissions away or whatever you want to say you know we we sign the, the the release forms 
to be a part of the experiment without really taking stock of what we're a part of. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's one of the, the more powerful quotes from this article. And this is taken from, as you see there, Julie Brill. She was commissioner of the United States Federal Trade Commission during Obama's years, 2010 to 2016. And she's speaking um, at an address before the International Association of Privacy Professionals in 2011, a speech called From the Woods to the Weeds. Hmm. We all know Louis Brandeis is one of the most influential justices on the Supreme Court, but fewer of you may know that he was also the person who conceived the Federal Trade Commission. So <laughs> conceiving it is from his mind. Yeah. Right? And there's the, the commissioner of the FTC saying, giving Louis Brandeis 100% sole, uh, yeah. sole responsibility and credit for creating the FTC. Now, his biographers are sort of all in degrees of agreement with that. But mm -hmm. I would I would say that, you know, it's all Brandeis. Wow. And so see where she is now. She's now chief privacy officer and corporate vice president for global privacy, safety and regulatory affairs at Microsoft. Of course. So here <laughs> That's we are. so perfect. Yeah. And so Brill fits the pattern of everyone else in this story. You're going to see after graduating magna cum laude with a BA in economics from Ivy League at Princeton, she then goes back and forth between public duty as commissioner of the FTC and uh, chief privacy officer at Microsoft. Here Brill exhibit exhibiting a conflict of interest through public-private partnerships made commonplace during Brandeis's time. So really what this is is fascism. Yeah. A public-private partnership, you start to get, you know, the government and the corporations working together, and we're not sure who's monitoring who. Well, that is what Mussolini called his corporatism. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we see we see that directly uh, parallel with the relationship, the love affair that America had with Mussolini, starting in early, you know, nineteen twenties, twenty one, twenty two. Right. And it's all, all these things are just inversions. If you look at them the right way, you know, the federal trade commission being an independent agency, mm -hmm. uh, it's like, mm -hmm. like, you know, enforcing um, civil antitrust law and consumer protection and things like that. It's all inversions. It's not, you know. Yeah. They yeah. talk about it being created for the man on the make, not the made man. Right there, yeah. Regulations, right, and so they're regulating the man on the make, the ordinary man, the the, the sovereign citizen, mm -hmm. the ordinary citizen of society. These are to regulate him, not those that have already made their money. So you can see that they're they're already sort of separating a little in in their language. But yep, you're right. It's all like today. They use right. nice sounding words and mm -hmm. and they present ideals of yes. ways that they would like to see things um, and not necessarily a lot of thought in regards to whether they're first of all possible, you know, and this is really the unattainable ideal and the um, noble lie. Yeah. They use that. So, thousand percent. Uh, Solicitor General once told the lawyer, George Farnham, that when Brandeis, Mr. Brandeis writes an opinion dealing with a question of federal practice, the law is settled for 50 years to come. While this may be somewhat exaggerated, Brandeis did have a great impact not only on jurisdictional matters, 
but on commercial law, antitrust, administrative law, utility regulation, federalism, and individual liberties. So he's crossing the board here. It's a comprehensive uh, installation of this new idea, uh, society governed by the scientific expert. And so here's Julie Brill again saying the Federal Trade Commission is the brainchild of Louis D. Brandeis. Wow. Later in that same speech. So when the FTC opened its doors in March 1915, it had become the surprising centerpiece of Wilson's antitrust program. During the 1912 campaign, Theodore Roosevelt had been the advocate for a strong commission. Roosevelt, who launched a short-lived progressive party, would even have allowed an agency to set prices. Wilson was skeptical of a commission in 1912 and remained skeptical when he launched his antitrust initiative in January 1914. He proposed a purely investigatory body. But when the initiative bogged down, he was persuaded by Louis Brandeis and George Rubley, a friend to Brandeis and a former Roosevelt advisor, Theodore there, to embrace, to embrace part of the progressive program, Section 5's administratively enforced prohibition of unfair methods of competition. So there is your general term that they used under which everything can fall. Unfair methods of competition. That's what yeah. they are um, looking into enforcing. Right? Jesus. So it's very ambiguous, wow. just like today. Right, yeah. All these very you know, vague concepts that they can yeah. kind of put whatever they want into. Yeah, because they're very vague about it at the time. They're not really sure as to where all of this will go. You know, he's yeah, just, true. Brandeis is just broaching the idea of wiretapping. Mm -hmm. You know, and so as a presidential advisor, Brandeis convinced the president, Congress, the Supreme Court, and the American people to accept radical new approaches to everything from labor legislation and trade unionism to life insurance and public utility, from trust busting and women's suffrage to conservation. Brandeis introducing to American new terms like scientific management, regulated competition, industrial relations, standard cost accounting, trade agreement monitoring, resale price maintenance, interlocking directorates, and so on. Brandeis, more than anyone else, is responsible for placing the first foundational building blocks of our modern surveillance state through this, his introduction of a vast network of regulatory agencies. Now, that's me saying that. Mm -hmm. And so that is what we're seeing. You know, this yeah. is how the administrative state was created. Supreme that's Court unreal. justice acting as a radical, really, right. you know, nothing holding him back. So as we get closer to the end here, we'll just summarize this to sure. you know, his activities. As an attorney, Brandeis established a radical new method of arguing law and once confirmed justice, transferred this method to the Supreme Court, making even our Supreme Court justices social activists. He opened the door wow. to an entirely new interpretation of U.S. law through sociological jurisprudence. And as a concerned Jewish American, Brandeis almost unfathomably rises through the rank and file to lead American Zionism to their ultimate goal of gaining a homeland in Palestine. Brandeis wow. crucial in persuading the Christian evangelical movement, now numbering over 100 million today, to offer its support for a new Zion by befriending key founders of dispensationalism, and the Christian fundamental movement. So we're going to get into that in future episodes, how mm -hmm. that all went down. Because when you think about it as the Zionist leader, they wanted, uh, they were trying to raise support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Well, they got uh, the Christian evangelicals and Presbyterians and, and really the whole Christian movement here in America to back that whole idea. Mm -hmm. And how they did that was inserting, um, the scientific expert into the Bible, really. 
you know, that's what C.I. Schofield Bible is. It's the first right. Bible footnotes. And we're going to be Schofield. talking about the Schofield Bible in this series, I assume. It's going to yep. be coming and up. And we are going to get there. It's it's one of the later episodes. And mm-hmm. it, it's one of the later ones because it's about the philosophies and, and a lot of these catchwords. And so this is why I like that we've done it a week apart, these shows, and that we're doing an accompanying uh, video because we can explain these terms and make them easy to understand you know like dual loyalty i think we all know what dual loyalty is mm-hmm. you know we see that you know he's there at the the nexus of the creation of that whole idea too at least in modern times so yeah yep go ahead oh i was just gonna say and and you know right now shout out to the folks watching live we got four people watching right nice. now we've had we've had we've had more throughout the hour but um cool. For now, thank you so much. And yeah. and throughout this series, you know, I'm hopefully hopefully this will inspire some, you know, some questions or some comments yeah. that come up throughout. Um, and if that's the case, we can kind of do a little Q and A there yeah, on man. that aspect as well Throw for some sure. Questions down. I asked yeah. that on Facebook today for anybody that wants to join the conversation, definitely throw down some questions or anything where that you can add to emphasize what we're saying here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll be definitely taking uh, each of these episodes live um, for cool. the next 10 weeks unless something comes up. we got to skip yeah. a week, so be it. But yep. the trajectory is to do this over the next 10 weeks. Um, it might stay the same day of the week. Uh, I don't know. We'll figure yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah. To the best of our ability is what I said. So we're going yes. to commit to getting it done as, and we're going to try to be as consistent as we can. Yeah, this is a story worth hearing all the way through and and taking in for sure. And so as a mediator in the creation of labor law, because he was an attorney in the first decade of 1900s, he combined scientific management with industrial relations in bringing together employee and employer. Brandeis surrounding himself with key members of the Taylor Society in directing the nascent moments of our modern day industrial democracy. So once we get into the scientific management, you'll see that he's creating the industrial democracy too. And to do that, he needed a government that was, you know, um, applicable or, you know, relatable. Right. Like they had to fit together. Right. And they all do. You have to have a superstructure to build everything else onto. And really the administrative state had to come first. Mm -hmm. And then you see that, they've systematically just built this. So Brandeis here displaying a pattern we see repeated in each of the stories to follow by gaining influence over and then becoming the guiding hand to a newly discovered technology and the small but very influential group of men that created it. Brandeis radically altered the old traditional definitions of American life in ways we are only now coming to terms with. Wow, so Louis is... Brandeis, sorry? No, go ahead. <laughs> Louis Brandeis conceptualized regulated competition. This is another one of these terms that we need to, sort of familiarize ourselves with this is mm-hmm. another vague term this is really what he ba- based it on was regulated competition and introduced it into public debate Pol- political entrepreneurs in congress enacted many of brandeis's proposals into law so brandeis formulated a blueprint for a federal trade commission from his experience with railroad regulation that's going back to his attorney days mm-hmm. and he's really establishing how railroads operate, how working uh, eight-hour days and and five-day work weeks. He's establishing all of this infrastructure that we we have today. 
Mm. Yeah, a lot of these things we complain about and say, these are manufactured parts of society now. Like, where did these things come from? Mm -hmm. Mostly Brandeis. Yeah, we're seeing that it's it's mostly from Brandeis. Mm -hmm. So when Woodrow Wilson, as Theodore Roosevelt had done, was looking to promote his agenda on the Council of Brandeis, he opted for commissions. Commissions had the power and the merit of regulating industry and avoiding the need for direct legislative in intervention. So you can see that they're trying to stay out of government entanglements, commissions rather than committees. So I guess committees are, are connected somehow to the government and you have to answer to um, the people, whereas commissions mm. are just, you know, business, businessmen right. and they're making decisions on the bottom line. Which is how everything's run. Yep. Nowadays. And so Brandeis decomposed scientific management in 19th century common law and recombined their parts in a syncretic blueprint for a federal trade commission. And syncretic, I looked that up. And what that is, is combining two things. Mm. And so we are seeing that he's doing that. So uh, with scientific management and industrial relations, when we look at putting people into factories, the workers uh, repelled the the thought of being perfected and being scientifically managed, you know, to carry the ultimate amount of soil in a wheelbarrow and all of these things that were being implemented in, into, uh, into their pursuit of certainty. Mm -hmm. They wanted uh, efficiency. So this preparedness movement or um, sorry, the progressive movement is really, uh, it has two backbones to it. And one's the preparedness movement and one's the efficiency movement. And so they're preaching efficiency of the human being, but also the factory. And so you can imagine that people were not happy with being forced into factories. A lot of people were living agrarian lifestyles on their own land at this point. And um, this move into the city and into factories, you know, there were wars. People fought against this. And so this is what industrial relations was, is Robert Grosvenor Valentine, the owner of Harvard, or the owner of House of Truth, is the guy that comes up with industrial democracy, or sorry, industrial relations. And so he's making it, they come to the conclusion that the employee will never join this agreement with the employer as long as they feel like it's the employer's idea and the employer is the only one to benefit. Mm -hmm. Right. So that makes sense. Yeah. And so they said, okay, we're going to get into a cooperative relationship where the, the worker is going to participate and share in the profits. And so we can see today that that's, you know, this is the beauty about hindsight. We've had a hundred years of it. And so these, these things never happened. Right. You see today that, you know, the workers dominated and at, at the whim of his employer now more than then, you know, mm -hmm. nobody, nobody today really works their entire life at the same place like they did even back then, which was one of right. the benefits of this whole lifestyle is that you did have uh, security throughout your life. Mm -hmm. But we, the children of their future now can sit here and look at these conclusions and hash them out pretty easily because we've had a hundred years to look. I mean, the FTC and the federal reserve are pretty obvious uh, problems right. for society. When, when we've constructed a debt clock in 
Times Square or whatever in New York that never stops and it's like a tourist attraction, we've got problems. Yeah, that's messed up. It's, you know, falling in love uh, with our our downfall, yeah. which is, uh, I believe, another manufactured mentality that's kind of been uh, pushed into our, our psyches over the last century, you know, and it doesn't fall far away from from the the frankest ideal either you know this profane society right you know? yep yep so insofar as the career of a single person illustrates both the problems that led to the ftc's creation and the reasons for its subsequent failure that mm. person is louis d brandeis the most influential critic of trust during his generation brandeis served from 1912 until 1916 as woodrow wilson's chief economic advisor and was regarded as one of the architects of the ftc so we're just substantiating you're seeing the provenance that we're using, profits of regulation. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so these books are found online. We do um, try to keep up and have these on the bulletproofpub.com website in our library. But this research, uh, being as fresh it is, as it is, we haven't been able to do that. But, you know, go to archive.org for any of this. Mm, yeah. Right? Go to archive.org. As long as these books aren't in print, they're they're going to be there 99% of the time. And mm -hmm. one thing I want to actually say here too is that whenever I get to books about Brandeis, I can't just simply save image as and put it into a folder. I have to take screenshots and put two pieces together, put it into paint. And, you know, it takes me about three minutes per picture per page to put together. And so... I'm seeing that there's a gate there, you know, archive.org is excellent in that, you know, for the most part, you can go there and just right click on the page and up comes your little tab and it says save image as, and you can just put that away in a yeah, second. Absolutely. But anything, anytime I come around Brandeis, it's to the point where I totally predict it now. It's like, there's nothing there. They don't help you at all. And a lot of times these books aren't available. And the only way I'm getting these quotes is because I know some of the, the names and the situations so I can put in keyword searches and, mm. and then unveil a lot of the book that they, you know, generally aren't willing to give us. So, well, this kind of reminds me of that's, that's a great point. And it's kind of, it kind of harkens back to a conversation that you, and I believe it was when Andy Gerard was with us, uh, we have talked about, you know, the book burnings back in the early 20th century and how controlled, like it was like a kind of a controlled opposition situation there too, because, you know, you find out it's like, sure, a lot of people's books were being burned at that time, like Huxley and things yep. like that. And when I was growing up and I'm, I apologize, we did talk about this on a previous episode, but just to reiterate, growing up as kind of like an open-minded, psychedelic-driven hippie mm -hmm. kind of guy, and, and oh yeah, fuck the government kind of guy, yeah. Aldous Huxley is one of our traditional heroes, you know, or supposedly. And I, th that's just rehashing old info. People definitely need to check out the articles you've written at bulletproofpub.com on Aldous Huxley as well. Like uh, his whole influence and, you know, being a centerpiece as well. So yeah. it's really great to see all these different key figures um you know, we should just, we're going to have to make trophies for all of them and, and <laughs> honor them in a way that ha no one has been honored before in the most profane fucking way. Well, I think that that's what we're going to do here. 
hang them high. Try to be sophisticated. We're going to show them that, you know, we can be sophisticated and we can learn things. And, and, you know, a lot of this whole movement by them is because they don't think that we're good enough. And I would say that you can't claim that while taking our education away. So, you know, I want to see what happens when we have the education that they removed. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to be an example of, of just how powerful and how um, influential we can be. And I'm not saying I am, but here we are. And I'm, you know, revealing some information that over the last hundred years, not many people have found. And I'm talking about mainstream and independent media uh, for whatever reason, this, this whole um, epoch yeah. has been buried. And so you know, it first started with uh, stumbling upon the House of Truth, a political salon. And I didn't even really understand the power that is behind political salons and the reasons why they exist. But then I found out that they, this goes back to, you know, the French Revolution. And this is how these radical liberals really gather in and create schemes is in their own private homes away from everybody else in conclaves. Yeah. And so this, you speak of Huxley and he's really one of the progenitors of this this idea of political salons in LA. So we wrote an article about the political salons in Los Angeles and you know how they overtook film noir and and you know they they really they've been using Hollywood since day one on a demoralization program. And if you doubt me, go look at the first movies that are ever made, you know, even the the ones with no speaking in them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh Fritz Lang's Metropolis, it's pretty dark and it's pretty futuristic. And so, yeah, trip to the moon. These are the things that we're unveiling, man, is that a lot of this, I mean, I always go back to that saying where it's not, there's no easy way to tell somebody they've been living an illusion their entire life when, and really that's what they've done. We've, and our generation, and I would include you and I in that, I mean, we're Mm. reasonably the same. We were born into this. Yeah. And so, you know, it takes a little bit to, to see it. And oh, yeah. so that's what we're trying to do. Especially when most of your heroes are part of it too, you know, and I know I get hung up on that aspect a lot, but it's, it yeah. burns in me, you know? And well, this is part of being a, having a reasonable deductive process and, and having a, a singular focus on the truth is that, you're aware of your, your prejudice filters, right? And what is prejudice, uh, prejudice, but just prejudging, right. You know, pre looking like judging a book by its cover, thinking we know something, uh, yet we're filled with ignorance on the topic. Right. You know, these aspects of looking at ourselves being better. These are, this is really where we're focusing. So, yeah. Yeah. As within, so without, you know, the individual to the whole society. I mean, we need to do this as a society, just as individuals uh, face their own traumas and, and grow as individuals over time. It's like, you have to check your lack of discernment, your, uh, wow, I I never used to even think about my behavior there. Like all these things, we will be doing this on a societal level as well. Uh, but not through social programming. We're going to be doing it through hard, cold reality hitting us in the face, whether it's slowly but surely or all at once or a little bit of both. Uh, and I hope we can provide that throughout this series, you know? Yeah. And I think just I like to keep our arguments on a human level 
because they can't divide us there. And Absolutely. you can't argue against it. That's so, right. This is probably a great place to end yeah. episode yeah, one yeah. and sort of give an introduction to who Louis Brandeis was and to sort of give us a good stepping off place now. You know, we're absolutely in, we're in Woodrow Wilson's administration showing just how influential he is on a domestic level. Now we get to branch off from here and show just the other avenues that he goes down and and ends up, you know, really steering everything in in Paris on an international level. Right. Okay. So there's a giant uh, end game here. That and we've this just begun tonight. So. Yeah, this is so exciting. And this picture is going to, you know, it's going to be like one of those slowly rendering <laughs> images and it's just going to be like, boom. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be sharing this far and wide and ho hoping cool. to get a lot more um, people checking it out next week. Yeah. And yeah. Um, this will be on the podcast feed as well. Maybe not right away, but I will get it all figured out this week and we'll have a kind of a, a uniformity to this this whole situation yeah. over the yeah, next weeks to, and everything. It seemed to be fine. Heck yeah. Worked tickety boo, eh? On your end. Yeah, it actually did. It was pretty good. The only th this was my first live ever, yeah. so I mean, it went pretty good considering. And I appreciate everybody that came on and checked it out live. And uh, yeah, everybody who's listening or watching after the fact, appreciate you. And yeah. see you next time, uh, Dwayne. Thank you as always for being here, man. Appreciate the work. Everybody, you're doing. bring a friend next week. Hey, eh? bring a friend. Yeah, next week. please do. Yeah, and ask some questions. Or you know, and study up if you, if you're interested yeah. in this stuff. If you want to know these answers, like look into the, some of this stuff. Go to bulletproofpub.com. Check out a lot of Dwayne's articles. Cross reference what he's saying with your own research. And it's uh, it's a fulfilling process. Yeah, we so. got a lot of people. <laughs> we got a lot of people in the background just really. I know sending us a lot of information, helping us out too, and discovering along the way with us. So we're just, you know, trying to grab more and more people on a mission towards the truth. So thank you, Andy Rouse, for giving us an opportunity to do that tonight. Looking Absolutely. forward to the next few weeks. Yes, me too. Looking forward to it. Everybody have a great week. See you next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats swimming together, that's hysteria. Enough, I get the point. <laughs> you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? Ha, 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 ha!